Good morning. You're listening to X-Ray FM at KXRY Portland and uh, 107.1 and 91.1 FM streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Good morning. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host for this hour, Christine Alexander. In celebration of International Women's Day, we're hosting 12 hours of women-focused programming. We are amplifying women's voices and providing intersectional education on a diverse range of issues impacting women in Portland and beyond. For the next hour, we will be talking about women and the labor movement, the history, the state of unions today, and what the future holds. On the panel, I am happy to welcome my guest today, Stacy Chamberlain, Executive Director of Oregon AFSCME, that's American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Good morning, Stacy. And also joining us, Amber McCoy, a member of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, a union activist and a proud member of Sisters in the Brotherhood. Good morning, Amber. Morning, Christine. Thank you for having me. It's oh, a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Last time we talked on the air, we had so many tef- technical difficulties. I had to have you back so that my audience could hear what a great voice you are for women in labor and um, especially women in the trade. So thanks for bearing with us and coming back again. I, I appreciate it. So if you'd like to join us in this conversation with any questions or comments for our guests or me or uh, just in general about women and labor and the union uh, and labor movement, um, we encourage you to do so. You can text us at 971-220-5979 or you can send us an email to dj at xray.fm. So Stacy and Amber... What I'd like to do is sort of take the first little segment of the show to talk about the history of women in the labor movement. I think there are a lot of unsung heroes um, who are not necessarily in our lines of work, but who were instrumental in helping create um, labor unions in this country, not just for women, but for men as well. And so I'm going to give a, a breakdown of what I think were some of the high points of women in labor history, and then... I'd like for you to share sort of your um, your uh, union uh, um, history and the women involved in it. And then uh, later in the hour, we're going to talk about the state of the unions today, where you see us going, um, and then what the future holds uh, as we as we wrap up at 945. So I'm just going to kick it out, uh, kick it off here with um, an historical look at women in the labor movement here in the United States. What a lot of people may not realize is that many were immigrants who came here at a very early age and um, started working as children in a lot of these garment um, uh, workers' unions and things like that. They define themselves as socialists. And we'll start at the turn of the 19th century. And some of the clips I'm going to play for you today are from an episode of the PBS series American Experience. And this episode is, I think, should be on everyone's must-watch list. It's called The Gilded Age, and it talks about the um, the labor movement and the populist movement that happened at the turn of the last century. Not this century, not the 21st century, but the 19th century. And I think there are so many parallels to what we're experiencing today with wealth inequality, with the weakness of labor unions today, frankly, as as compared to the heyday in the 1950s and 60s. So I'm going to start out with a clip about a woman named Mary Elizabeth Lease. And she um, was instrumental at the turn of the century. Here's filmmaker Sarah Colt. 
Mary Elizabeth Lease was an activist in Kansas working for underdogs. She had been trained as a school teacher. She had become a licensed attorney. But by the summer of 1890, she was making money as a lecturer. She had become known for making speeches about women's rights and for labor unions. And when she saw farmers in the early 1890s struggling the way she and her husband had struggled when they lost their business, she took on that fight. Farmers were working incredibly hard and producing a great bounty for the nation, but they weren't getting the financial benefits of all their hard work. She said, this isn't fair. The bankers on Wall Street are making all sorts of money on the backs of the men and women in Kansas, and we need to do something about this. As a woman in Kansas, she wasn't able legally to run for political office, but she was this very well-known lecturer and speaker. And so in the summer of 1890, Mary Elizabeth Lease travels around the state to stump for a third party called the Kansas People's Party that was the populist party. Lease was in on the ground floor of this populist movement. I think that clip brings up a couple of interesting points, and one is uh, the definition of populism and the populist parties, and I think that they've gotten a bad name and a bad rap in this um, recent history because we see um, the sort of Trumpian movement being called a populist movement, whereas I think that if we go back to that original sort of idea of populism, it was about the population and what is best for the workers. So that's why I wanted you to hear that clip about her. The next thing I want to play is about a woman. Um, this is from American Masters, a, a series called Unladylike, The Changemakers. And this woman's name is Rose Schneiderman. In the garment industry, men and women work together, which had a very profound impact on the consciousness of women because they could see they were producing the same number of garments as the male worker next to them and they were getting a lower pay. In 1905, Schneiderman led a citywide non-violent strike against pay inequality that resulted in raises for women hatmakers. Each boss does the best he can to squeeze his workers to the last penny. We must stand together to resist. This Now, Schneiderman was part of a growing movement in the um, early 1900s. And this brings us to a point in time that many of you may be familiar with, and that's the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Before this famous fire that killed over uh, uh, close to 150 workers, mainly young women, there was a strike. And this was very interesting because at the time, and this is in 1909, uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a new uh, factory in a modern high-rise building and it employed mostly young single immigrant women. And the fact that it was in a modern high-rise building made it actually better for the workers to organize, to create solidarity and sisterhood instead of what had previously happened, which was smaller sweatshops. One of those women, Pauline Newman, was an immigrant who at the age of eight 
began working at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, earning $1.50 a week. During the 12-hour workdays, laborers were, they were constantly watched, their bathroom breaks were timed, their wages were docked if they made any mistakes on the factory floor. The Triangle factory workers went on strike in November of 1909. Max Blank and Isaac Harris weren't going to let a bunch of disgruntled factory girls tell them how to run their company. The Triangle owners used private detective agencies to provide replacement workers and muscle. Bought prostitutes to start fights with the women on the picket lines and paid off the local police precinct. Their hired thugs beat Triangle strikers and policemen hauled the picketers into court if they fought back. But every day for six weeks, in the face of physical abuse and public indifference, the women took up their places in front of the Ash Building. The longer the women of the Triangle stood fast, the more workers at other shirtwaist factories paid attention. Week after week, the feeling grew. Something could be done at their own shop. I used to go in the ladies' room, and a few used to follow me and I was talking to them union. I knew our girls were dissatisfied. I knew other shops were already on strike. I knew it only needed someone to talk to the girls a little, and they would join the strikers. Well, that someone turned out to be Clara Lemlik, a 23-year-old Ukrainian immigrant. She rose to a position of power in the labor movement, becoming the voice that incited the famous uprising of the 20,000 in 1909. In the following months, more than 40,000 female New York City factory workers protested their poor working conditions and low wages. That strike, of course, dubbed the uprising of the 20,000, lasted over two months and transformed the culture of industrial workers. Protesters won concessions from several factories for fair wages and shorter hours, and Lemlick had not only started a protest, but she had instigated a workers' revolution. revolution. And Roge Schneiderman was there as well. The 11-week strike resulted in most garment factories signing protocols to improve work conditions and safety standards. However, some of the factories didn't sign the protocols. One of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history was a fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1911 that killed nearly 150 garment workers. Most of the women died because the doors were locked from the outside and they jumped out the windows. So although the shirtwaist factory workers had uh, struck, they had been part of that big strike, their bosses agreed to some of those um, demands but did not allow a union, and that's what allowed the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire to happen after that initial strike. Now, um, the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire is multidimensional. The tragedy highlighted the issues that defined city life in the turn of the century America, but it also became a benchmark moment in the progressive era that ultimately resulted in drastic changes in labor standards, 
for factories across New York City and later the nation. This tragedy 110 years ago highlighted some of the issues we still face today. The power of big business and the quest for an equal voice in the workplace and fair compensation. By the way, the owners of the factory, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, were acquitted of manslaughter. They collected a large insurance settlement that included a payout of $400 for each worker killed, none of which did they share with the families of the victims. Now, I'm going to transition to one other person. I've got a few more to tell, share, you, uh, share with you, but this woman is possibly the greatest unsung hero of the labor movement. Many of us know who she is, but more don't, and that's a tragedy. Her name was Frances Perkins, and she is called the woman behind the New Deal. She was the first female cabinet secretary. Roosevelt biographer called Perkins one of the nation's greatest heroes, as iconic as Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Paine. She was the architect of government, government policies, thanks to the foundations laid by unions, Government policies like a federal minimum wage, the 40-hour work week, self-invested retirement accounts, which we now know as Social Security, which she also helped shepherd through Congress during the New Deal. Her values have been part of the social fabric of this country since the 1930s. And with conversations today about the demise of the middle class and the uncertain future of the working class, her legacy must be revived and improved upon. I also want to mention that there were numerous women in that in that FDR cabinet. There was Frances Perkins at the United States Department of Labor. She also had working with her Mary T. Norton, um, uh, um, Clara Mortensen Beyer, who was a pioneer in labor economics as well. And these they also created the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Again, you can credit women with much of this work. The uh, Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 was a revised proposal that first wanted to adopt a 30-hour work week, which some of us are still pushing for today. But they had to revise it, and it, they adopted an eight-hour day and a 40-hour work week and allowed workers to earn wages for extra four hours of overtime, as well as the minimum wage. Children under 18 could not do certain dangerous jobs, and children under 16 were not allowed to work in manufacturing or mining during school hours. That was the Fair Labor Standards Act, and we owe a lot of it to Frances Perkins. I want to take a quick break, and there are many other women who were important. Uh, Dolores Huerta, who created the phrase, Si se puede, and many credit Cesar Chavez with that. But no, it was, it was, uh, it was Dolores Huerta. ...that you could really change the world. A lifetime of fighting for workers' rights. Dolores is an icon. She's a civil rights hero. But why has her legacy been so overlooked? Dolores Huerta came up with Si Se Puede, and we all attribute that to Cesar Chavez. Women cannot be written out of history. The award-winning film, Dolores, part of Independent Lens. So that was from Independent Lens, the trailer for their film, Dolores, which is great, and I recommend everyone see it. So we're going to take a quick break here, and coming up, we'll talk about recent labor history and the women in it and why, after the heyday of the 50s and 60s, unions began to weaken and lose market share. But first, we're going to play for you as our break, Bread and Roses. It's a political slogan, as well as the name of an associated poem and song. It comes from a speech given by suffragist Helen Todd. 
a line in that speech about bread for all and roses too, meaning not just cold hard cash, but dignity as well. Listen to the Aaron Adair cover as we take a break. And um, if you'd like to join in the conversation with any questions or comments for our guests, Amber McCoy or Stacy Chamberlain or me, Christine Alexander, we encourage you to do so by texting 971-220-5979 or sending an email to dj at xray.fm. We'll be back with a conversation about women and the labor movement. You're listening to X-Ray FM. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill offs gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. As we go marching, marching, we battle to four men, for they are women's brothers, and together we shall win. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we go marching, marching, unnumbered women dead Go crying through their singing, their ancient cry for bread Small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too Good morning. You are listening to X-Ray FM here in Portland and Amplify Women today on International Women's Day. This hour, the topic is women and the labor movement. If you'd like to join the conversation with any questions or comments for our guests or for me, we encourage you to do so by texting 971-5979 or sending an email to dj at X-Ray FM. I'm Christine Alexander. I'll be your host for this hour. My guests this morning are Amber McCoy, she is a member, a carpenter, a member of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, and Stacy Chamberlain, the executive director of Oregon AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning, Amber and Stacy. I appreciate your being here. So let's start out the conversation talking about... Um, if you could give me a breakdown, since we're on the, let's stick on the history, give me a breakdown of the unions that, that you are members of, um, and, and sort of the, the brief history of your unions, and perhaps the role that women have played in that. Um, I'll start with you, Amber. So, um, as a member of the Carpenters, uh, we started in 1881, and although that's attributed to men like Peter J. McGuire, I'm quite sure that there was a lot of strong women supporting them. Uh, on the side. So uh, the first official uh, female member we had in the Carpenters Union actually happened right here in the state of Oregon. Uh, Margaret Ellings uh, joined the Carpenters Union in the 1930s in Tillamook, Oregon as a logger. Um, so that's 
always something I like to talk about a lot. Uh, about my home state. So yeah. it was worth going, I imagine, for the women in the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even the 70s that ended up joining our organization. And I do know of a, of a small handful of them. Uh, in the late 70s, a federal law was passed requiring uh, a goal of 6.9% female participation on uh, federal construction projects. And we immediately sort of saw a jump up to women being 3% of the construction industry, including uh, my organization for the Carpenters. And uh, the goal of 6.9% um, wasn't reached and actually still has not been reached to this day. Um, but we've had uh, stayed steady at 3% of the construction industry being female from there till frankly now. Um, but what we did get is a group of women that joined our organization in the 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, oftentimes, and they stuck with it. And over time, they gained some notoriety, some standing in the union, being elected to various things. And in the mid 90s, they start running into each other at national carpenter events. Um, and then they can meet, network. And in the early 2000s, they formed the, um, I said, the International Sisters and the Brotherhood Committee uh, for Carpenter Women. Um, and then that started in the, the first uh, international convention of the women was in the early 2000s. The first one I was able to join was in 2008. Uh, in 2010, here in the Portland area, we started our chapter of our Sisters in the Brotherhood Caucus. Um, and we are one of the largest, most active sisters groups in the UBC, which uh, is across the US and Canada. And we really had a focus of developing leaders. And I think that we've had a lot of success with that, developing female leaders as, um, and as we move into the uh, 2020s, we have uh, two EST, executive secretary treasurers that are female, one in the Eastern part of Canada and one right here in the Pacific Northwest. Evelyn Shapiro. Exactly, who yes. oversees 29,000 union carpenters and their families. And um, that's filtered down, not just to the top of our organization, but right here locally, um, as I'm sure you know, Christine, that mine and your Carpenter Local, that we both belong to Carpenters Local 1503, our executive board is 50% female. Um, and we're, we're really proud of the, the progress that we have made. Um, and across the building industry here in Oregon, we do have a higher percentage of women in construction in comparison to the national average. And our organization is, is 6% female, although with our apprentices bringing in, we are bringing in much higher numbers. So um, hopefully we will, you know, incrementally be changing those numbers for the better. Um, and when we get to uh, 50%, we, we'll, uh, we'll call ourselves uh, winners. Yeah, but we're doing good right now. I think um, with some of the progress that we've made considering the industry that we are in. Amram McCoy with the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and Sisters in the Brotherhood, which I am a proud member of, just so our listeners know. I am a member of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists since 1997 and a proud member of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America since 2017. I am an eighth-term apprentice, and uh, in the last class I just took last week, there, uh, one quarter of the class was women. There were only six of us, but two of us were women. So <laughs> I'm like, yay, 25%, woo! 
So that being said, I will turn to Stacy Chamberlain, the executive director of Oregon AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Stacy, give us a brief rundown of the history of your union and women in Thanks, it. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Christina. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, and I'm a little bit jealous because, um, you know, women in AFSME have a long history of being uh, active and shaping our union. However, if you go back and really dig down and look, you're going to see the same uh, female union leaders that get um, they get praised for doing a lot of this work. And you've already mentioned them earlier. And they're not necessarily specific AFSCME women, but I think what you see is sort of this, um, you know, no credit given to the folks that did the underpinning of all of the real work. It was those folks that were in leadership positions, which in my union, AFSCME, um, is predominantly men, right? And so what you see is a lot of um, credit given to men that were in leadership at the time of major changes that we all know that women played a major role in shaping that and facing that. Um, AFSCME, uh, so I'm the executive director of Oregon AFSCME. We represent 30,000 workers across the state. Um, I'm also a very proud uh, board member on our international executive board. Uh, so AFSCME nationally has been around since 1932. We have 33 uh, board seats on our national board, and I am one woman on that board, and we only make up about a third, right? Wow. And our membership across the country um, is more than half women, right? Wow. And so we still have some work to do. Um, but, you know, some of the women that are playing a major role in shaping those changes right now is our very own Elisa McBride. She's the secretary treasurer of uh, AFSCME International and is the second uh, woman to hold that position, right? The second woman wow. only to hold that position. And she is really uh, leading um, with her voice and trying to talk and connect with women and encouraging women to raise their issues up. I am so proud to be working with her and being under her leadership. We also have leaders like uh, Carla Insigna, who is uh, just got appointed to the judicial panel at our national. And while the judicial panel might not sound like that sexy or important of a job, it is super important to have the person who is looking at whether or not the rules have been violated with a lens of folks that have had rules set up against them historically, right? Right. And so Carla is just a powerhouse. She's a former executive director of one of our affiliate AFSCME unions, but also was um, the chair of CLU uh, for a number of years too. And so really excited uh, to see her in this new role and what uh, she's gonna bring to that. And then in Oregon in our home state, you know, we have a number of amazing women uh, really pushing uh, the change. Uh, Tina Turner Morfitt, uh, I think, might have been on your show before. She is a long, uh, she's a retiree now, but is a, um, a longtime AFSCME member leader, a black woman in corrections who really has consistently and historically uh, called us on our stuff. Uh, pointed out things that we needed to improve on and has really helped make us a better organization. And I uh, thank her for her mentorship and leadership. Um, we also have folks like uh, Elizabeth Getzinger, who's a president of Metro. Um, she is, I don't know where this woman gets her energy. Um, she not only is focused on 
um, the work at Metro and making sure that members, especially during this pandemic, are being represented, but she's reaching out to the community and dealing with the issues around race and social justice that need to be part of these conversations as we're rebuilding better. So, um, and then lastly, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, Christy O'Neill. Christy O'Neill is Oregon's AFL-CIO Secretary Treasurer. She's also a uh, the Vice President of Oregon AFSCME. And, you know, she is a young uh, woman who is fearless. Um, you asked Christy to stand up and uh, make sure that folks understand the real struggles that our members are under, specifically women and BIPOC uh, uh, members. Um, she's there. And uh, whether that means that she is driving from Southern Oregon to Portland uh, to be there and stand in solidarity, uh, she's always there. So I am really lucky that I get to be surrounded by these amazing women. And Oregon AFSCME is doing something a little bit different with International Women's Day is we're trying to record these amazing women. And so we're asking our members to nominate amazing women across AFSCME and recognize them for the roles that they're playing in changing our local, changing the culture of our union so that we have a history moving forward so that we can recognize them uh, in the history of our union too. Oral histories are a great way to preserve um, what we've seen and what we've done. And, and it's so easily accessible to people now instead of forcing them to read some dry, long, uh, you know, uh, essay, just uh, some oral history, some storytelling is a great way to share history. So my guest, Stacy Chamberlain, we just heard from, Oregon AFSCME, and Amber McCoy, a member of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and a, a proud member of Sisters in the Brotherhood. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about where the unions are now and um, how we move forward in this time when um, workers are under fire, um, we've seen the rise of right-to-work states. We saw the decline of the union um, movement in the 70s and 80s. And, and really, how do we rebuild that? How do we get people to understand um, that what it means to unionize and what the future holds? So um, I'm Christine Alexander. This is uh, X-Ray FM, and you're listening to International Women's Day Amplify Women. So stay tuned for more about women working on X-Ray FM. Mama said, all right. That was Panic at the Disco, High Hopes. Love that song. It gets me going. And it reminds me that we all have high hopes. We all want a better world. We want a better life. We want a better working life. And uh, I think um, redefining the American dream is also part of that. But that's a discussion for another day. Uh, so my guest today, Stacy Chamberlain, Executive Director of Oregon AFSCME, and Amber McCoy, a member of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and Sisters in the Brotherhood. So um, I'd like to skip down a little bit. We had so much material prepared that... I'm going to have to skip some stuff, but for you ladies, I'm letting you know that I'm going to skip down to this idea. Oh, and if you'd like, if our listeners would like to join the, the conversation, uh, questions, comments, uh, text us at 971-220-5979 or send us an email, dj at x-ray fm. 
So, uh, okay, so where do we go from here? I, I think that I'd like to talk about, there's so many aspects of this, but one thing, and it's not necessarily in your individual wheelhouses, but more unionization in general, and how we move forward and, and re-educate the American people, because now we're, we're, we have lived for a couple generations now of people who have not grown up in union homes, who have not grown up with their moms or dads going to a union job every day. Um, Amber, I'm going to ask you maybe because you and I have had conversations like this so much, and I know that you've that that you're so articulate about, um, and and specifically the carpenters union talks about it in our education as a member of the union about what happened to the unions in the 70s and 80s. And why now do we find ourselves in such a weakened position? And it may not be pretty to talk about, but I think we need to look at the past to to really define and strategize how we move forward in the future and get back that market share. So, Amber, if you could talk a little bit about what happened to the unions in the 70s and 80s. Well, I think that... um you had a bunch of guys that were on a high and thought the world that they had created would uh, just continue on and that you didn't have to maintain the fight. And politically, things shifted under them that they did not uh, see coming. And um, it, it very much weakened their hand. Uh, you have, you know, Ronald Reagan coming in in the 80s, uh, you know, with an agenda to demolish the unions. You have, um, you know, some some think tanks um, and political ideas that were formulated in the uh, 60s and 70s really take hold uh, in the 80s. And, um, you know, we changed some of the laws around um, striking um, and, and making a lot of the stuff that the unions had done to be successful as no longer things that they could do moving forward. And so that weakened them. Um, I know here in Oregon, um, we had uh, a lot of struggles with that recession that happened, you know, that, that scared people. Um, and when it came down to like for our organization being the construction industry, you had companies that were struggling and the union um, really thought that they could, you know, demand the same wages and, and everything moving forward. And the companies went non-union and the workers went with them because they would rather work than not work. Right. Right. You know, I mean, when it comes down to it, I think, um, People around the world, but especially here in America, we work. Um, we're hardworking folks uh, for the vast majority of folks, and we will work even at subpar wages, um, even in horrible conditions, um, because the idea of not working and not providing for our families is not really an option. So um, little by little, things got eroded, um, and a lot of the there was a lot of misinformation coming from you know the other side, and we lost... Um, the ability to, to speak for ourselves uh, when, you know, on our news and our radios, you don't necessarily hear about working people's struggles. You hear about Wall Street, which has, you know, nothing to do with Main Street, if you will. Zero. Yep. I'm so with you. I'm so tired of people gauging our economic success by the stock market. That's all, do excuse me, the last president did was look at the stock market and think we're all great. Well, we're not all great. The stock market does not reflect the life of the average American worker. Stacy, I'd like to get your take on, um, on what happened and uh, how is it possible that we live in an age now where the guys who used to be staunch union members 
are now on the other side of the fence. I mean, I know that there are brothers in, in my union who who voted for the last president and who think, uh, who are basically non-union, but they're union members. And I'm wondering, how did we get here to the point where we allowed the capitalists to to um, write the narrative on unionization and unions? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, if I had the solution to that, Christina, I would be a very, very wealthy woman. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think uh, Amber, you know, hit all the major points, um, you know, of how we kind of um, got here. But to this real point, you know, it feels like we were afraid to have the hard conversations in our unions. Mm. And and um, avoidance is never a good strategy, right? That, that um, it's just a delay tactic, that there will become a point in our union where we have to confront the issues that are in front of us, that there's no way but through. And so that's how we got here, right? We were afraid to have these hard conversations about race inside of our labor movements and about systems that were created um, long before many of, long before us, um, right on this call, um, but that were really created to keep those in power, those wealthy um, you know, white men um, when the system were created in power, right? And that we're seeing that to this day, right? And along with what Amber um, was saying um, was this idea that every time workers started to get ahead, they kept moving the playing field they kept changing the rules at play, right? Every time we found a strategy or tactic that worked, then that became illegal and the law changed. And so you saw the erosion of a law that was really intended to provide any worker a path to unionism in this country really start getting eroded. Not only that, they empowered employers with tools that they didn't have before to really beat back on any workers with intimidation and fear and division when they tried to raise their voice and organize a union in their workplace. And that fear and division is what we saw played out in this last election cycle. And it's what many of us are still feeling in our unions right now. And until we start having those tough conversations and connecting the dots, that this division is really just intended to make us weak. And this is really about power and money at the end of the day. But until we start addressing the real pain and impact that these systems have on our members, our BIPOC members, we're never going to be able to build back a better system that not only fully funds the services, represent public employees and public services that fully funds the public services that you know that we all rely on and that my members provide we're just not going to be able to have those conversations right and so i think that's kind of how we we got to where we're at okay amber any thoughts i'm going to take a quick break here unless you have something to add to that real quick um uh so um i want i want to get to what you said uh, just now also stacy and amber to what you your point we have a pro-labor president now, and um, we're going to talk about that and the future of unions and what it means for all of us. And I just want to mention, lastly, before we take a, a break, um, I tried to get them to join our panel, but uh, unfortunately didn't hear back from the International Workers Union, uh, IWW, the Wobblies, and the folks who are organizing a union at Voodoo Donuts, who also organized Burgerville and who did Little Big Burger. Um, I think that fast food is one of those no-brainers. It should be unionized, and um, if we can start seeing more of that happening, I think that would also really 
change the playing field because it's such a vast industry, so huge. Uh, so we're going to talk about that when we come back. I'm Christine Alexander. My guests are Stacy Chamberlain from Oregon AFSCME and Amber McCoy from the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners. You are listening to Women Work on X-Ray FM. morning. You're listening to X-Ray FM. I'm Christine Alexander, your host for this hour of Amplify Women. We're talking about women work. I, I you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to call this segment. Women work, women's work, working girls. Oh, and then I realized how <laughs> the negative connotations all those things have with women and work. And then someone else suggested women in labor and I'm like, well, that sounds like a maternity segment. So so we, we went with women work. And we know women work in the home. We know that um, they are greatly underappreciated for all they do in so many ways. But today we're talking about it in terms of women in the workforce, in the labor movement. And my guests this morning are Amber McCoy from the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, a longtime carpenter and member of Sisters in the Brotherhood, and Stacy Chamberlain. Uh, from Oregon AFSCME. And um, so so the next thing I want to talk about is, to, to end this hour, is where we go from here. And I know that we've only had an hour and we've only touched on these things, but that's what I want to give our listeners a little bit of everything because I think that it's important that we start re-educating America on labor and how important it is. So, So I want to start with where are we now? And I want to ask you both, what do you think it means going forward now with uh, such a pro-labor president as Joe Biden? Here he is announcing his pick for Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. ...understands like I do, the middle class built this country, and unions built the middle class. He sees how union workers have been holding this country together during this crisis. Healthcare workers, keeping our hospitals safe, clean, and effective, and efficient, I might add. Public so, service workers, fighting against budget shortfalls to keep communities afloat. Port workers, car haulers, warehouse workers, folks keeping our air and rail systems running. They're literally what's keeping us going. And they deserve a Secretary of Labor 
who knows how to build their power as workers, who knows that when I say our future will be made in America, it will be a future built by American workers, a future with historic investments in infrastructure, clean energy, manufacturing, and so much more that's going to create millions of good-paying jobs. Marty knows worker power means not just protecting the right to unionize, but encouraging unionization and collective bargaining. The Fair Labor Standards Act way back didn't say, didn't just say you can have unions, it said the government should encourage the formation of unions. That's it. Joe Biden sounding like he's on Quaaludes. Kidding. Just kidding. It was a little. I'm so I apologize for the sound being a little off. That was probably my fault when I recorded it. But basically, he's talking about infrastructure, building back better. And that means unions. And so I want to ask you first, Stacey, will it make a difference? Is this going to make a difference? Absolutely. We, we, he came out of the gate uh, making a difference, right? Yeah. I don't, right? It was great. Um, that's what we wanted to see. Uh, and our president is sort of talking about the country as one country, not a divided country, talking about the pandemic in a responsible way and getting folks vaccinated. And then, you know, with and specifically, you know, with regard to labor stuff, just right on point, you know, with the appointment of not only you know Marty to this position, but firing the National uh, Labor Relations uh, Board attorney, uh, who is responsible for some you know was appointed at the very end and was not the direction uh, I think of the purpose of the National Labor Relations Act. Um, he's gone on record supporting Amazon workers organizing. I mean, this is huge, and you know he is pushing and supportive of the Pro Act, um, the right to organize. Um, which is the most comprehensive labor law reform that we've seen since the 1935 uh, with the passage of Taft-Hartley and uh, the National Labor Relations Act, right? So this is huge, right? And this piece of legislation in and of itself would do more for women uh, being able to have a voice and organize in the workplace because we know when women have an opportunity to organize and they get a union, they're better off. And frankly, we're all better off when women organize. And so, yes, I am so excited that this president uh, his actions so far, and I hope to see more. And Amber McCoy, um, uh, from a carpenter's perspective, from a tradeswoman's perspective, what are you? Um, what do you think about Joe Biden and and his pro-union stance? I think it's a game changer. Obviously, just like Stacy was saying. I mean, and we also have this opportunity. Um, you know, we have disinvested in our infrastructure across this country, and so we have an opportunity now to build that back. And if we um, are building it back with a, a pro-union mindset in terms of the workers getting uh, the wages and benefits that they deserve, if we build it back uh, thinking about equity and bringing in everybody in America, women and BIPOC folks, and if we think about uh, the other major issue that we have in America around climate change and the ability to, as we build back this country, to build it uh, with fair wages, that are available to everybody in America um, and with an idea that what we create is gonna be more sustainable. I think that um, a lot of these things that, that have been so horrible happening in our country, we really have an opportunity if we do this right to dramatically change what we're gonna look like going forward. And I'm 
very excited and have all the hope in, in the world in my heart for us doing this right. My guest today, Amber McCoy and Stacy Chamberlain, both union leaders in, in the Oregon area. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in talking about how we move forward. And I think I asked you this last time I talked to you, Amber, about actually organizing a union. And how did those folks at Voodoo Donuts and Little Big Burger and, and Burgerville do it? And, and how do we let people out there know that you, too, can unionize your workplace? And, and uh, how do we do that? Amber, you want to start? Or, or Stacy, whoever, jump in. Certainly. I mean, it starts by um, just getting together with your fellow workers. And like we sort of talked about before, whether you decide to organize your particular job site and that employer, or you decide to uh, organize an industry like carpenters were organized as an industry and not specifically with direct employers. Um, that's your first question. Um, and, then, and then to think about what ideas do you hold as a group of workers and find a, a national union that um, gets the area that you're trying to unionize and has values that you um, agree with because there's a lot of different unions out there. We all see the world a little bit differently. You know, the vast majority of us are fairly progressive, but, um, you know, get to know what you want and what you would want in the union that you're going to organize with and then work with them and they'll help you move forward with the, the next steps for you. So it's really as simple as a Google search. You know, if you're um, a, a, a worker in, in a trade and or in a, some business, just Google if there's a union for retail workers or a union for fast food workers. It's as simple as starting there and then contacting that union and saying, hey, help us. So it's not that hard. And again, it lifts, it's that, it lifts everybody. There are people who think they're non-union, but they don't really understand what it means to be in a union, how it's about collective bargaining, which means we've got your back. We've, we've got a group of people who are going to come together and ask for that raise for you. So you don't have to go into your boss and sit in front of his desk and say, I think I deserve a raise, and then him say, well, no, I can't afford it right now. We've, these, you know, these are people who will go in as a group, sit in front of all those bosses, and say, our workers need to be paid this, they need to have this kind of time off, they need to have this safety protection, they need to have this kind of health care, et cetera, et cetera. And, and our union, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters, um, by joining the union, we pay dues. Yes, we pay dues, and we get... Um, our health care plan through the union, we get a retirement plan through the union, we have a certain amount of dollars taken out of our paycheck. And that's all to go toward our benefits and helping our brothers and sisters who are in our union and who are not in our union yet, finding them and bringing them in. So a lot of people complain about dues and this and that, and who are good, why do I have to pay you every month? Well, because that's part of being an organization, and that's why you get that higher wage. That's why you're being paid 40 bucks an hour as opposed to that non-union uh, roofer out there who's getting $15 an hour, you know. And so it's there. you have to pay for what you get in a certain extent. We do live in a capitalistic society, and if you want to participate and you want to be taken care of, you got to put in your fair share, man. That's all there is to it, ladies, men, women, brothers and sisters. Okay, so... So uh, in just the few minutes we've got left, um, 
I guess um, I, I guess I'll just give you guys a couple minutes to wrap up, and maybe there's something that we didn't talk about that you'd like to to hit on for a minute or two. Stacy, why don't you go first? Stacy Chamberlain, Oregon asks me. I've been itching, itching because I think you know the answer is, is in front of us. We have this pro act, right, which is going to give. Uh, opportunities for so many workers to organize in a union. And what we saw in this pandemic is the union difference. Our members and union workers across the state and across this country had issues around personal protective equipment, around safety, around telework, around childcare, and other issues that were left reluctance to figure out we dealt with them early on because we were able to and we had a union, right? And we actually helped elected sort of get to that spot. And so that's why this PRO Act is so, so important. And uh, today at noon, we're actually having a rally um, in front of uh, Congressman Schrader's office in Oregon City. It's at 621 High Street. And we're going to uh, tell uh, Congressman Schrader that we need more than his courtesy vote. I don't know if folks saw a statement that he put out yesterday. Um, when the PRO Act came up in 2020, um, unfortunately, Representative Schrader decided not to support it. He decided to support his rich friends and not his constituents yep. in his district. And um, this time when it was up again, we were hearing more of the same, and that's why we were showing up today. And the issue is, is that he um, is only going to pass it as a courtesy to get it to the Senate and will not commit to supporting it when it comes up for a full vote. And that's not okay. These constituents deserve more than a courtesy. They deserve a, a representative that will fight for them. So please join us today. Stacy Chamberlain, Oregon AFSCME. Amber, you got the last word. One minute. I'll see you at the event at uh, Trader's office because <laughs> this is where uh, boots on the ground makes things change. Amber McCoy from the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, Stacy Chamberlain from Oregon AFSCME. I can't thank you women enough for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to see your faces and especially hear your voices that are so important. And uh, I love you guys. Thank you. Gals. I hate that. I even do that. Guys. Ah! All a work in progress. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Women Work, a part of Amplify Women on X-Ray FM, a celebration of International Women's Day. Coming up next, supporting survivors, Latina community advocacy, and pro bono legal empowerment. You're listening to X-Ray FM. <laughs>